Welcome back to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host and THR's chief TV critic, the one and only Mr. Daniel Feinberg. Dan, what's shaking? Just bracing for what I hear is a long weekend. How about you, Leslie? The same. I am burned out and I'm ready for a little bit of a break, which is a weird thing to say when we really haven't left the house in a couple of months. So, Uh, you know, if nothing else, the news has been not just steady, but I would say a little bit of a torrent in in the past couple of weeks. So we should probably get right to business. Yes, well, let's start off with this week's headlines. Fox has renewed The Resident, Prodigal Son and Last Man Standing and canceled rookie comedy Outmatched, which I'm guessing most of our listeners have never heard of. Over at NBC, the network has renewed Good Girls for a fourth season. Our THR colleague Ashley Collins is a big fan of Outmatched, so we are sorry, Ashley, and for any other fans of Outmatched who exist, because I'm sure All they're out there. All six of you. Anyway, over at The CW, Ruby Rose has exited Batwoman ahead of season two. The role of Batwoman will be recast with another actress from the LGBTQ community. At Freeform... The Disney-owned cable network has renewed Josh Thomas comedy Everything's Gonna Be Okay and drama Motherland Fort Salem for second seasons. Meanwhile, Good Trouble, Grownish, and new series Cruel Summer from Jessica Biel have been slated for a 2021 return. And speaking of Disney-owned cable networks, FX has picked up comedy Breeders for a second season. Uh, Disney-owned FX is never not going to sound strange. Right? In streaming news, Netflix has renewed Gentified for a second season and picked up the anthology Notes on a Scandal from TV's top five favorite, David E. Kelly. CBS All Access has ordered Star Trek Strange New Worlds, a Discovery spinoff featuring Anson Mount, Ethan Peck, and Rebecca Romaine reprising their roles as Captain Pike, Spock, and Number One, respectively. And wrapping up this week's headlines in News Just In, John Krasinski's feel-good viral video series, Some Good News, has been sold following a massive bidding war to Viacom CBS. First-run episodes, which will feature a new host stepping in for Krasinski, will air first on CBS All Access before moving later to different linear networks within the CBS Viacom fold. I guess that's good news. Sure. It has indeed been one of the the positive things of these past couple strange months. Yes. And uh, it was a rich deal from everything that I have heard. But yeah, lots of bidders on this one, considering the captive audience. And I think one of the videos had something crazy like 17 million views. It was, well, good news at a, at a rough time. So, well, with all that out of the way, let's dive into this week's top five. Number one. Leading off. ABC has firmed up its new and returning series for whatever it is the 2020-2021 actually looks like. Leslie, what do you want to tell us about what ABC announced this week? Well, let's just run through quickly what's coming back. So returning for additional seasons, and this is just on the scripted front for now. Returning for additional seasons are American Housewife, Blackish, Mixedish, The Connors, The Goldbergs, A Million Little Things, The Rookie, Freshman Stumptown. Meanwhile, sophomore comedies Bless This Mess, Single Parents, the Goldberg spinoff Schooled, as well as first year drama Emergence have all been canceled. Remaining on the bubble are The Baker and the Beauty and For Life, which both recently launched and haven't had decisions yet. And then United We Fall, which is a limited series that is awaiting a premiere date. 
Additionally, the network has handed out two series orders, one of which was technically already confirmed. But the first up is The Big Sky, a David E. Kelly PI drama starring Kylie Bunbury and Catherine Winnick. And then multi and then a multi-camera comedy from The New Adventures of Old Christine Boss, Carrie Lizer, starring Kira Sedgwick that is called, well, Call Your Mother. Um, on the unscripted side... Basically, everything that you think is returning is coming back. The Bachelor, Dancing with the Stars, Shark Tank, the new Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, and News Magazine 2020. ABC's Kids Say the Darndest Things will not, however, return. So the interesting, my interesting takeaway from this for, you know, right now is that the network's scripted drama is at about half of what it had coming into this current TV season, the 2019-2020 season, which just ended. When you factor in the four cancellations that were just announced this week and the four shows that all ended this season, Modern Family, Fresh Off the Boat, How to Get Away with Murder and Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., that's a a considerable amount less of scripted. And it's also worth noting, you know, they still have a really, really great pilot slate. Christopher Vernoff's Rebel, the Aaron Brockovich drama, um, a 30-something sequel. Those are all still in play it's unclear if they're going to add any more more scripted shows to the schedule for next year because, well, we don't know what their schedule is. That's not something that they're announcing right now. But yeah, it's it's there's a lot of question marks that I have here. I'm sort of fixating briefly, at least, on the renewals and cancellations personally. I guess I'm somewhat happy to see a second season for Stumptown, which was not particularly high rated, but had the very good Kobe Smulders in it giving a very good performance. Personally, I would have rather had a second season of Emergence, which had a great performance by Alison Tolman and a great cast. And I thought it was just a, a really above average version of the sort of sci-fi serialized drama that ABC has pretty much failed at nonstop since Lost. Uh, and, well, here's another one. So I guess that's how it goes. I think that cancellation also may have had something to do with the fact that the creators are, are moving on from their overall deal at ABC Studios. So I think that's a deal that just wasn't, it wasn't renewed. I think it was up, and I think everyone involved agreed that this was probably not a fit anymore. So... And and the ratings were were dismal. I mean, that's that's not a surprise. It would have been a, a pure generosity pickoff. It also wasn't a show that was ever developed for ABC. If you remember, it was yes. produced to picked up to pilot and, and filmed for NBC before they passed on it. And ABC swooped in like days after the one of the cancellations that that hurts me somewhat is single parents, which had actually become the ABC comedy that I kind of looked forward to most on a weekly basis this season. Uh, it had a bunch of great performances. I, I think that Leighton Meester, people should be bending over backwards to try finding comedy projects for her going forward. She is genuinely hilarious. It was a great reminder of how good Brad Garrett can be. It was another reminder of how the casting department at ABC does better than almost anyone else when it comes to kids. So if you look at the young actors on that show, they were all scene stealers and just really impressive for young actors. But but mostly my takeaway from that show on a weekly basis was my God, Leighton Meester is funny and and should be given these things to do. And, and so I'm a little disappointed in that. It's the kind of show that I would have thought they would have wanted to to nurture. But, you know, there are obviously always multiple factors in these things. Uh, 
So, yeah, some of those yeah. new shows sound interesting, though. I'm I'm there for a show with uh, Kylie Bunbury and uh, and Catherine Winnick. That that seems like a show I would watch. <laughs> yeah. And Kira Sedgwick has been on ABC before. I can't remember the name of the show, but it was like a summer Canadian low cost thing that she starred in. If memory it was serves. not it was uh, it was the Valley show and it was it was not a low cost or Canadian at all. It was a, it wasn't. No, it was it was a totally legitimate limited series show that simply no one watched. And yeah. So it goes. <laughs> well, I will say just since we're talking about, you know, since we're pouring one out for canceled shows here, um, my hat goes out to school. Um, I'm a big fan of the Goldbergs. I watch every week. And I really thought that the show found itself in, you know, in season one. It had a great backstory. You know, it was developed a couple seasons ago. They passed on it. The creator, Adam F. Goldberg, fought to get it on Hulu. And then they where it did apparently very well. And then they aired it as an episode of. Uh, the Goldbergs as a special like backdoor pilot and then retooled it and recast it. And I, I just thought, you know, it found itself really well in season one and season two started off really rough when they had a showrunner change and then they had to write that course and Adam came back in and took better creative control and then kind of righted the ship. And then they had their, their season cut short by the coronavirus pandemic, which shut down that and a number of other broadcast shows, which also had their seasons cut short. So it, it's a tough loss. I love that cast. I love the, the concept of, you know, the 90s spinoff, but I'm hoping that they can find ways to, to bring some of those great cast members back to the Goldbergs, which is returning. I consistently wished that Schooled was a better show. I, I liked elements of it, but I don't know that they ever found any sort of consistent comic rhythm, much less the the heart that the Goldbergs has on a much more reliable basis. But anyway, I, I'm a little surprised that they wouldn't have kept that show going, given the amount of interactivity there was between Goldbergs, which they obviously like, and Schooled, which they clearly like. And Schooled did really, really well for them, too. It was a good, good pairing. But, you know, I, I think what will be more interesting to me is what ABC does with its schedule, because, like I said, the volume is it, for scripted is very low. There's not a lot of new unscripted series joining the slate. And of course, you know, they had they did renew three other scripted shows, Grey's Station 19 and The Good Doctor. So and then they have a couple other um, unscripted shows that they, they already announced as returning, like American Idol and Supermarket Sweep. I think that, you know, they, they picked up and hasn't aired yet. But, yeah, I'm curious what the strategy is going to be. Um, we don't know their their schedule just yet. Although if I had to venture a guess, I think you would see some some shows from within the Disney ecosystem, maybe something from Disney Plus or Hulu, maybe even Freeform if you're stretching it, air on the linear network. So I'll be very curious to see how their schedule comes together. And speaking of streaming, we should mention one massive change that's happening behind the scenes there. Kevin Mayer, the executive who oversaw the launch of Disney Plus, has exited the company to become the CEO of social media platform TikTok. Disney veteran Rebecca Campbell will succeed him as chairman of Disney's direct-to-consumer platforms and international. She most recently was president of Disneyland Resort and has overseen Disney in Europe, the Middle East, and Asia, as well as serving in the same role at ABC's owned TV stations. So lots of changes, again, going on behind the scenes there. I just like how anytime Disney makes an executive shift and they, they bring someone over from theme parks, it just makes me think of succession. And I, I was like just going to say the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> and I feel like eventually Cousin Greg is just going to be in charge of Disney entirely, and that will make me very happy. But yeah, unfortunately, that's my only thought on on this particular executive change, though. Obviously, it is a fairly massive change. And obviously, this is a fairly massive change for both Disney and for TikTok, which has been one of the real kind of breakouts of this 
coronavirus quarantine. Obviously, it was a a service that had you know a tremendous young audience largely before this, but has really kind of broken out into the somewhat lamer mainstream in the past couple of months. So, yeah, definitely a a sign that TikTok will own all of us someday. Dan, are you on TikTok? I am not on TikTok, Leslie. Are you on TikTok? No. I think I'm probably 20 years too old to be. Uh, yes, I, I, I feel as if when you sign up, there's probably one of those little spinny dials where uh, once the number goes into the 70s or even the 80s for your birth year, they say you're not <laughs> eligible. So, yeah, they say, go away, go back to go back to Facebook, go back to yeah. Facebook. Exactly. <laughs> <sighs> so, yes. Yeah, so you mentioned what ABC's plans were for whether things are premiering in the fall or midseason or whatever. And that feels to me like a transition to our second topic of the week. Number two. Up second, CBS has unveiled its quote unquote fall schedule, and it's a little bit of a head scratcher. CBS, they announced this week that they are basically plotting business as usual with their programming, with the returns of all of their scripted series. So NCIS, FBI, well, three NCIS shows, two FBI shows. Um, they're holding Clarice for midseason. Um, but it's basically their schedule as if there was no pandemic. And the one one of the interesting things here is that Kelly Call, the Networks Entertainment president, told me that he thinks it's 90 percent likely that their fall season won't start during September's premiere week, as in the third week of September, when typically everything comes back with fresh episodes. So rather than revealing a Corona proof schedule, Kelly Call says that the network is anticipating a return to production sometime this summer, which could mean July or August, and that shows could return staggered, meaning if Chuck Lorre comedies that shoot in L.A. on sound stages can return to production without, a, say, a studio audience, then they could be on the schedule before, say, two of Dick Wolf's New York shot FBI dramas can, and which could return later. So basically, this is, if you ask my two cents here and well, if you're listening to this, that's, a, I'm guessing, part of the reason why you want to know this. But it's I, I, this feels like a schedule that is safe and meant to appease investors and, and kind of steady the ship on Wall Street, which is, you know, the, the Viacom CBS stuff has been a little bit turbulent considering all of the, all of the changes there and, the, and what's going on on these cable networks, which are increasingly bowing out of scripted and finding it incredibly hard to cut through and to have anything perform in a streaming era. So yeah, a lot of weird, weird stuff here. It feels, it feels optimistic at perhaps a time when I'm not ready to feel optimistic about it. I would say saying that it feels optimistic is one way of putting it, saying it seems deluded or like it exists in a fantasy realm would be another way to put it. But the thing that everyone has to remember is that that's kind of what upfronts are anyway. They're already this verging on science fiction, speculative fiction world in which Every show that the networks are going to program for the upcoming year is going to be the biggest hit ever, and everything is going to be a success, and they're all going to be Emmy contenders, and everything is going to build off of everything in these wonderfully lucrative ways, and give me money, give me money, give me money. So they're already a fantasy realm. It's just if you look at what the other networks have done these past couple weeks under the most stressful and strange and unusual of circumstances – I feel as if they have all, other than CBS, agreed to live in a reality that somewhat matches our reality. 
And CBS has decided to exist in an optimistic reality. It's not like they're existing in some total alternate reality where we all have two heads and aliens have landed and anything like that. But they are basically going with this idea, Okay, the world is going to get back to normal and it's going to get back to normal soon, whereas everyone else is going with the the world might get back to normal someday and we don't really know. So we're not going to plan on it and we're not going to ask you for billions of dollars on the basis of the supposition that the world is going to return to normal. Right. (laughs) And as we said in last week's episode, Fox and the CW have both announced their fourth quarter Schedules. And I'm saying fourth quarter because no one knows when the fall, the quote unquote traditional fall season is going to start. Look, the CW typically doesn't start. It's, you know, bringing back originals until October. They have announced that nothing will come back until January. We know that. And instead, their schedule, they found creative ways to fill a schedule with first run episodes. And uh, granted, this, you know, as one executive called them, some of these are, quote unquote, gently used shows, as in things that people that may not have reached a, a wide audience. So you've got canceled shows from CBS All Access and DC Universe. Fox picked up Ellie's Finest from from Spectrum. CBS, when I asked Kelly Call, I'm like, if you can't return to production this summer, what do you program in the fourth quarter? And he said, well, he wasn't able to to share specifics. This is stuff that they're holding close to the vest. But he did point to the fact that that the network is part of a massive conglomerate. It was with Viacom CBS. And basically, they're going to they're looking at acquisition, same as everyone else. Some of these foreign shows that that both um, that, that the CW and NBC have picked up. And at the same time, they're probably going to have some content from around the, the, the Viacom CBS ecosystem. So whether this means CBS could air season two of The Good Fight from CBS All Access, I, it wouldn't surprise me, but I would rather see more recent seasons. And I don't know, but that's just me. But yeah, I mean, chances are that CBS is going to have a hard time to get getting back up and running to hit a September date, which is why Kelly said this is not something that's going to happen in the premiere week. So what they program is, you know, for fall is going to be a mystery. So. And and let me emphasize, I would love for Kelly Call and CBS to be correct that the world is on the verge of getting back to normal. And and just yesterday, California Governor Gavin Newsom said that he expects to have some list of provisos, situations, circumstances, whatever, under which production can begin in certain ways. And he expects to have that list by the beginning of next week. So and he thinks production knows? could start next week, too. I mean, that that's feels a little irresponsible. But who am I to say? But, you know, one thing Kelly mentioned is that this is we're also in an, in an era where they could have a faster turnaround on episodes. So if you complete some of these episodes in, in August, they could 100 percent be on the schedule for September and kind of fasten, you know, and, and maybe speed up the rate of which things move move forward. So. And it's totally on brand for CBS. If CBS had done its upfront this week, basically their point was going to be the whole time. It was going to be, look, we're the most watched network on television as we've been every single year for over a decade. Except one. Except one. We are bringing back the most stable lineup on television, blah, blah, blah. I mean, that was going to be what they were going to say if they did an upfront. So this is kind of an extension of that, wherein they're able to project that CBS stability so that it is even able to overcome the coronavirus. That That is completely and totally on brand for CBS. It It just... It feels optimistic to me, but maybe that's because I'm a pessimistic person and maybe they are absolutely correct that they see 
a way forward in which they can have those Chuck Lorre multicam shooting in July or August and they can do a quick turnaround and all of that. You know, I, I can't begin to know how a, a Dick Wolf procedural shot in New York City is actually going to be able to go into production and is actually going to be able to have episodes at any reasonable time in the fall. I, I can't imagine that, but maybe that is a problem with my imagination and not something else. Yeah. And if you want to go the other way, you know, look, Fox and, and, and CW both have Corona proof fall schedules or Q4 schedules. Well, what's to say if, if they do find a way to, to get back up and running, there's nothing that, that says Fox and CW could say, well, we announced these plans and then the world shifted back and became a safer place. And we're going to throw these out the window and yeah, we'll air Ellie's finest, but it'll be, you know, next summer when no one gives a shit. So who knows? Exactly. That's the, the, the science fiction nature of upfronts always acknowledges the possibility that one week after upfronts, Things anyone could yeah. anyone could change anything they wanted to already. So this just means that it's the entire world that's changing and not just an episode of a pilot didn't edit together exactly as well as they wanted to. And they needed to push it to midseason, which happens all, all the time. time. Yeah. Well, Dan, this feels like we've exhausted everything about CBS. Let's move up to our next topic. What do you say? Sure. Number three. Up third, HBO Max's launch is finally upon us. The Warner Media backed platform will officially launch May 27th with the entire libraries of Friends and the Big Bang Theory and scripted original Love Life starring Anna Kendrick and a whole bunch of other things. You've got scripted stuff. You've got the entire HBO lineup. You've got a bunch of syndicated shows that maybe haven't been streaming. Like they've got stuff from across their entire ecosystem, Cartoon Network. You have just all of the CW's uh, first year shows library. So Batwoman, Nancy Drew, Katie Keene, thousands of hours of other library programming. You've got, you know, a, a little bit light on the scripted front um, in terms of originals at launch because, you know, you had production shut down on Gossip Girl and Kaylee Cuoco's thriller, The Flight Attendant and the Friends Reunion's not available at launch. Dan, there's a lot going on, but they're still moving forward. I, I do think it's notable that a lot of the things that HBO Max assumed they were going to have at launch as the, uh, to quote and reference our favorite departed executive, Paul Lee, the things that would be sticky, sticky. Uh, for for launch, a lot of those things simply did not exist thanks to the particular circumstances in the world. So obviously they would have loved it to have premiered telling everyone, oh, look, it's a friend's reunion. Come watch. Even if that was going to be a bait and switch and everyone was going to be like, oh, my God, it's not actually a new episode. It's just them sitting around talking instead, which I would still watch, of course. And it was it mostly it was still a thing that was going to give them a promotional hook to let everyone know that they existed. And I think they are in a position where it's a little bit harder under these circumstances. Obviously, the library is very, very good and they can push that. But if you look at the new programs that are launching with HBO Max next week, the review embargo on everything lifted this week. And if what you're hearing about all of these shows is somewhere between crickets and actual disdain, uh, there's a reason for that. It, the biggest scripted swing that they have coming is the romantic anthology Love Life starring Anna Kendrick. And it's just not very good. It's a, it's a decent premise for an anthology show. Each season is told in kind of chapters representing the evolution of a single character's love life from their first romance to their last or something to that effect. 
And the first season is just a, a, a dull version of an interesting premise, regardless of how hard Anna Kendrick tries. So they've got that. They've got the Elmo talk show. I've vented about my hatred for Elmo on this podcast and other podcasts before, and I still do. Well, the fact that I can say it's probably a little bit better than I thought I, it was going to be, and if it weren't Elmo, I would probably think it was actually really pretty good, uh, is the highest praise I can give it, and you have to know that that's difficult for me to say. I, I Dan believe... loves Elmo. <laughs> Elmo loves you too, Dan. It should be noted for everyone that Leslie explicitly promised me yesterday that she was not going to do her Elmo impression on this podcast. And it lasted exactly one reference to Elmo before she broke down. So but I understand. Dan likes Elmo. It's a good it is a good impression. And the show itself is OK. There's an episode where uh there's an episode where Lil Nas X uh, sings the Elmo song with Elmo, and it is kind of cute and amusing. So I'm giving it that. But no, basically, HBO Max is trying to figure out any way whatsoever to get hype, which is why earlier this week they made the nebulous but thrilling announcement that the much discussed, much vaunted Snyder cut of Justice League will appear on HBO Max at some point in 2021 in some form. Uh, if you read our colleague Boris Kitt's coverage of this announcement, it's pretty clear there is no Zack Snyder cut of Justice League, but it's also pretty clear that there's enough footage that they can figure out something to do with it. And also that HBO Max made the very correct assumption that a week before the launch of their service, this would be a good way to get absolutely everybody and their online mothers to write about their service. So everybody this week wrote about the Zack Snyder Justice League cut that does not exist. But it's going to exist in some form next year, maybe. Uh and if it doesn't, what are they going to say? You know, are they going to say, hey, look, we told you we were doing this this thing. It didn't come together the way we wanted it to. We don't have a six hour TV show or a four hour TV show or even a two hour movie. But here, enjoy this 90 minute behind the scenes documentary of his footage. You know, some people would still be satisfied with that. And even if they weren't, they got the entire publicity cycle this week, which is truly all they care about. Right. It's a friend's <laughs> reunion is what they did. Yeah. So, well, and. In an ideal world, they would have had both. So, yeah, so HBO Max, it's it's premiering next week. And someday they might have the Zack Snyder cut of Justice League. And until then, Big Bang Theory and Elmo and... And I, the entire library of Friends, which hasn't streamed in five months at a time when people are still at home. Which is it, kind of like what we talked about when we talked about the Peacock soft launch, right, in April, where... They had the office. Right. And here's a bunch of, you know, thousands of hours of, of library programming, even if there are, you know, there aren't any scripted originals that are launching with it. This is library programming with some of the most loved streaming shows out there at a time when people are turning increasingly to, to television to kind of stay, to, you know, distracted from the current hellscape that we're living in. I think you get people to stay with the service if you have a good library. I just think it helps to have something new to get them in the door and to have. But I mean, the... look. But how did Netflix launch, Dan? With only library, only well, library. Netflix launched with DVDs, and it was a multi-year process of how Netflix right, was launching. Right, but, but so. they launched on the backs of library content, and that's why you're seeing so many of these other streaming platforms do the same with 
Dash is a scripted and then they're building it up. You know, it helped that Disney did it help Disney Plus that they had at the Mandalorian at launch? 100%. Did it hurt Peacock that they didn't have an office spinoff when they launched? Probably not. They still had the office. HBO Max still has, you know, still has friends. You can we can debate this all day. I, th- I think it's still notable to see all the different ways that the streaming services are trying to move the needle promotionally as much as anything else, whether it's Disney Plus spending $75 million to air Hamilton, whether it's Apple TV Plus acquiring a Tom Hanks movie that's been on the shelf for a year. You know, people are people are doing the best they can to differentiate in a crowded marketplace. And I guess a Zack Snyder Justice League cuts through at least promotionally. Yes. Well, moving on. Up next is our showrunner spotlight segment. Number four. Our guest this week is Sam Esmail, the creator and regular director of USA's Mr. Robot. He directed the entirety of the first season of Amazon's Homecoming and executive produced the second season, which premieres on May 22nd. His credits also include USA's Briar Patch, as well as a limited series remake of Metropolis, a reboot of Battlestar Galactica, and Angeline, based on the Hollywood Reporter article by Gary Baum and starring Esmail's wife, Emmy Rossum. Welcome to the podcast, Sam. Thanks for having me, guys. It's a pleasure. So with Homecoming, you guys had a series that was originally ordered for two seasons, but you had a leading lady who was signed for only one. When did you decide and know what and whose story the second season was going to be? Well, we we actually knew from the beginning. Um, When Eli, Mike, and I talked about what the series was going to be overall, we, we sort of came up with this quasi-anthology model, whereas every new season would shift the point of view to a new character, new, totally new storyline, but we would still sort of stay within the same world and push the story forward. Um, we thought that, that there was something really interesting about that. And I also knew that I wasn't going to be able to come back for the second season because of Mr. Robot. So we thought that that was another way to just have another director sort of take the reins and kind of, um, I don't know, give it a new new voice, a new tone, a new direction to the show. So for all of those things, we sort of isolated in the beginning of season one that, you know, that, OK, if this if this season is really zeroed in on this small program within this larger corporation, that the second season would zoom out a little bit more and talk about that corporation, the corporation being Geist. And um, we also knew that Hong would. We kind of planted her in season one, this sort of brilliant actress who really doesn't get to do a lot in season one. But we knew that she, we were setting her up for season two. And then, of course, you know, you bring in you bring in Janelle Monet to take over the lead, which replacing Julia Roberts and shifting. If you're going to go from one star to another, that's that's quite a shift. But how did that inform kind of how you approached, you know, the, the tone of the show? Well, I think Janelle just bring we you know it's the same thing that happened with Julia uh when uh Julia was sort of interested in doing the first season is that that you you when someone has that presence that um sort of personality you sort of everything sort of just kind of kind of arranges around them and um and Janelle just goes into like you said just a a, a 
totally different perspective, a totally different tone, but she's also just got so many tools in her belt. I mean, she's this incredible performer, but she's so great at nuanced, in nuanced moments and subtleties. And then the dynamic between her and Stefan was very different than Julia and Stefan, but in just in all the right way. So it, that's the thing that we were talking about. The, the second season feels very different than the first season, even though we're employing a lot of the same characters and the same world. And Janelle was just that sort of injection of of just let's refresh, let's reboot, let's go into a totally different direction than Julia. But stay as exciting as Julia, you know, so. Well, you mentioned that after directing every episode of the first season, you passed the baton to Kyle Patrick Alvarez in the second season. How hard was that for you to do, that kind of seeding of control? And why was he the right person to pass the baton to? Well, it was incredibly hard. I wanted them to wait for me, <laughs> but that, that, would have, that would have taken way too long. And Mr. Robot had already waited for me for, for a whole year. And, um, I, I you know, I, I've said this during my Mr. Robot years. It, it was very hard to uh, seed control there as well in that first season when I didn't direct all of them. It's It's kind of like the only way I know how to do it. Um, which makes me in a, in a lot of ways, especially when you think about the great showrunners of all time, that's makes, uh, it puts me in a very small category there because, um, you have to learn how to manage that. But what, what, what I do think Kyle did with the second season was so different and, 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 and it, because of its difference, much better for that story than, than, than what I would have done. I mean, I'm, uh, uh, I, I liked season one because of all those scenes that sort of breathe those conversations between Julia and Stefan, where they sort of, you, I took my time with them and the pacing was sort of, uh, uh, uh slower. And it was really about si a simmering suspense. Second season sort of blows the doors out and it's a lot more action packed and a, a lot more taut of a thriller. And I think Kyle was just perfect at that. I mean, he kind of knocked it out of the park. So even though I was, it was really hard for me, I will say that it was all, all the better for it for the show. And, you know, obviously you are very well known in this industry for having an incredible amount of hands-on, whether it's directing every episode, being writing many of the scripts, super, uh, you're a very hands-on showrunner. But when, you, when I sat back and kind of refreshed my memory about all of the projects that you have that you're working on right now, you're supervising a lot of different things. Like as you navigate that and you expand into different you know, different areas. You have Battlestar Galactica, obviously for Peacock and a couple of, you're doing a podcast for UCP audio, but I, I wonder, is there a part of that that you enjoy more and how have you really grappled with, okay, I can supervise this. I can have, I can be maybe not as active in this, but this one I'm going to have, like, how do you, what do you enjoy? And, and what's like, what's the adjustment for you? Well, I, I wonder if it's, it's actually more of a shortcoming than, a, than anything. <laughs> well, I mean, I think, I think about somebody like Ryan Murphy, who just does every show and directs every, you know, every pilot or at least the first couple of episodes or maybe the first and last episode and writes on every show. And I just don't have that mental capacity or that uh, multitasking ability to sort of do that all on my shows. So what I tend to do is a little bit like what I did with the second season of Homecoming uh, or even with Briar Patch, which is, why I, you know, I fall in love with the script, the, the material. I fall in love with that person. And just like the chance that I was given with the first season, Mr. Robot, I say, this is your show. This is your baby. You run, you, you run the show. You go for it. And, and then I sort of 
give my input when uh, when it's time uh, on the scripts, on the edits, um, and I step in when I can and support when I can. So so it's a little different than I think a lot of uh, what other showrunners do. But for me, it seems to work because again, it's how I was empowered initially, and I I owe a lot of that. I, 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 I see the benefits of giving a showrunner that sort of freedom. I remember when we did the first season of Homecoming, there was this weird implied notion that I would just take over and rewrite all the scripts and write the show, and it would be an hour-long draw. And I, you know, I had to kind of, no, the, the, the guys did a brilliant job of the podcast. Why would I change that? I don't need to put my name on the scripts. And I'll just do my part of it that I think would be good for the show is the directing part of it. And I thought that was a really good way of, uh, you know, for me and my abilities and my lack of multitasking for me to be a supervising sort of supervising EP on these shows. Well, as you've been, though, in the earliest stages of development on all of these projects, when do you kind of get the feeling of how much involvement you want to have in each individual one of them? It's pretty early on. I kind of know with, I kind of have a gut instinct as to, like I knew when I listened to Homecoming, I could see it in my head. I knew I wanted to direct it pretty early when you, when I just listened to the podcast. And I knew from reading Briar Patch that that was a totally different tone than what I think uh, I would bring to the show and that, uh, that I wasn't going to direct and that I, that I, you know, that we should go out and find someone who's, who's more right for the, for the show. So I, I have a kind of gut check, even with Battlestar. I'm a huge fan of, uh, Battlestar, of Ronald Moore's Battlestar. And, but I, I don't know if I'm great at hard sci-fi like that. Uh, I love it. I'm a fan of it. Um, but I, I, I kind of knew early on that we were going to have to bring somebody in to run the room and, and to, uh, and to, to write the script. So, it's it's a it's a, it's pretty much a gut check. I mean, I, I'm not saying that won't change going forward, but for me, it's as a, especially as a director, because if I get involved, I'm probably directing, um, and and maybe I'm writing. I kind of just know where where my strengths are and where my weaknesses are, and sometimes I can put I can and I'm just kind of honest with myself. I have my, a conversation with Emmy. You know, I bring, you know I talk about this project and I say. You know, Emmy, what do you think? And she's like, you, you can't do that. I'm like, you're totally right. <laughs> <laughs> you, she's like, you'd be terrible at that. Or she, or she'd say the opposite. So, um, but it's pretty, it's, 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 it's in the really early stages of every project that I make that call. Yeah. And, you know, you mentioned obviously working with, with your wife, Emmy Rossum, who yeah. you're also working I mean, Angeline. Um, Angeline with, which is based on a great Hollywood Reporter story. Classic example. Uh, I would have died to direct that, but I, I wasn't, I knew I wasn't right for it. And she knows, I mean, we, and we had that honest conversation. Um, and we found an amazing filmmaker, Lucy Cherniak, to do it. And she's doing an outstanding job. So that, that, that that's just a, so I, I, it's, it's weird because, you know, growing up, I'm a fan of this stuff, right? I'm on this side watching it. And I, yeah, and you, can, um, you consume the, the most amount of content of perhaps any showrunner I've ever met. <laughs> well, I, I like, I enjoy what, what I, what we do. But at, at the same time, you got to have that honest conversation with yourself. Are you just wanting to do this as a fan or are you actually, do you actually think you have, uh, uh, something, something to bring to the project? But yeah, in, in, in the case of Angeline, which is sort of, heartbreaking because the stuff that they were shooting was absolutely fantastic. And, you know, I think eight weeks into it, we had to stop because of what's going on in the world. And, uh, and that was really heartbreaking, especially for Emmy, who's, 
you know, she tirelessly for like months before was, you know, going on a regimen, working with movement, working on speech, really inhabiting this character in an eerie way where I'm walking by a room and I don't hear her voice. I hear somebody else's voice and I'm like, who is that? You know, and and she does all this work and then it kind of gets brought to a halt, you know, um, but she's a she's a trooper. And the stuff that we're looking at, you know, we're cutting some scenes here and there is great. So. Uh, you know, obviously, when it's safe, we're excited to go back into that into the production of that. I just want to follow on that quickly, but you know, obviously, you guys were one of many, many shows that that had to shut down production in the middle of this current global pandemic. As you kind of think about the path back to work, how do you envision that? I mean, do you have a start date again? Like. What what does that look? What does returning to work look like for you when you think about that? It's 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 a it's well, look. That's a tricky question to answer. I think everybody's trying to figure it out. The problem with Angeline is we have crowd scenes. We are on location. We are in Los Angeles. We are trying to show showcase the city across three decades. That's near impossible in this environment because I think the the rules that that all productions are thinking about as they proceed is. Low body count, you know, minimal, minimal crew members, minimal actors on screen, trying to be in contained locations as much as possible where you can control the amount of people going in and out. Um, sound stages. Yeah. The sound stages. Yep. And Angeline's like the exact opposite of all of that. So, um, we don't have a start date. We're still trying to figure out, like, I think everybody when, when it's safe, because I mean, the one thing that as, as heartbreaking as all it was to, to shut down production, we're not going to do anything that risks, uh, the health of our crew members or our cast. So, um, so we're just still in a holding pattern, unfortunately. So then how do you think about, you know, if you have these crowd scenes that you, that, you know, look, LA, you know, not to be, make a joke here, but LA is obviously a character in this show. So how are you thinking differently about crowd scenes? And, you know, are there any other, like, if there's love scenes, like, how are you, how are you rethinking those? And, and even those in scripts for other projects? Going yeah. Forward? Well, look, crowd scenes, you could go the VFX route, right? Um, right. That sometimes looks pretty shitty. It's pretty shitty sometimes to do crowd scenes, not to shit on VFX companies because they do a great job. But we want to be as, you know, as raw like Angeline's. If you've seen the trailer, there's a lot of like grittiness and realism to it. And when you start doing heavy VFX work like like that, it, it does take away from it. Um, and yeah, there, there was a, there. I remember we toyed around with going somewhere else to shoot and cheat it for Los Angeles. But I mean, you're telling the story of Angeline. She's an, she's an LA icon. You really can't shoot it anywhere outside of Los Angeles. So to answer your question, how are we talking about? We're kind of shrugging right now. We're kind of just, <laughs> we're just kind of an, I don't know, wait and see. Hopefully there's therapeutic medications that are going to come out there. There's better testing and, 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 you know, obviously ultimately a vaccine and a combination of that that's going to that's going to help us get back to work in a safe way. Well, I'm sort of curious in all of these conversations, how people are looking at who is going to have to be the kind of canary in the coal mine to let people know that it's okay. You know, is this something where you would want to see somebody else prove that it was possible? Is this something where you would want to be kind of out in the vanguard doing it yourself? Or, you know, where? how do you look at, at who's going to determine when it's actually time? I think I think it's got to be I mean look I don't mind if I had a project that was contained 
that was on the soundstage, I think we would be knee deep in researching the safest way to shoot something like that. Cause I do think those are the ones that, uh, those are the kind of stories or productions that you can start to, uh, target and get creative and how you're going to, uh, change the filmmaking process. I, I have a guy, uh, a buddy of mine I went to school with that's a DP that's remote filming. He has cameras that you can remotely control through the internet and he asks the actors to light the scene and he sort of is shooting it that way. Um, but those are very particular stories. And, you know, uh, on, you know, we're doing shows like Angeline or Battlestar and these are crowded scenes. <laughs> these are big, big set pieces. And, um, unfortunately we just, we don't have the opportunity. Now look for the podcast. We did, we are working on that in terms of, now that's an easy, obviously a much easier uh, production to handle. Um, and we did a test, test, uh, uh, a, t a test show for that, test recording for that, and it worked out beautifully. But for, for shooting, it really has to be, somebody is going to have to have one of those sort of contained stories that make it pop, make it at least one step closer to, to a safer environment to shoot to be the canary in the coal mine, as you, as you, as you called it. I'm, I'm unfortunately not in that position. I guess I, I guess I think too big here. <laughs> you know, you mentioned Battlestar Galactica and you guys recently hired a writer um, to take point on that. Michael Leslie, talk a little bit about why he was the right fit for this one and how much you're interested in contributing stories to this show and possibly even writing scripts. Well, He's just a fantastic writer. Uh, he, you know, I loved his series, uh, uh, Little Drummer Girl. And the one thing that really struck me about him and his take for Battlestar, um, and one of the reasons why I even wanted to do Battlestar, uh, was that the way Ron Moore, what he did with, the, with the, his remake in, um, in the early 2000s, where it was this sort of hard sci-fi film or series with lots of, action set pieces and, and, um, and, and, and really this it, sort of an exciting sci-fi adventure, but purely grounded in an allegory of what was going on at the time, which is post nine 11. And it wasn't that subtle, the, the, the links I would, I would say, but, but because he was also attuned to the sci-fi nature of the show, you didn't feel it. So even though at the time I remember, and it's not unlike what we're going through now, but at the time I remember nobody wants to watch a TV show about 9-11. Uh, I don't even know if people really want to watch that now, but at the time it was a lot of, a lot of people rushing to the theaters and TV shows for escapism, but he somehow was able to do both. It felt like escape is fair, but at the same time grounded in what was going on. And, 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 and that kind of the ballet between those two things was so, beautifully done and beautifully executed that when um when i was approached to do battlestar now we had to have that same sort of dynamic um it can't be just a retread of what he already did so masterfully back then what are we saying about today's world and mike just had this great take and I don't, i'm not gonna go into it because i obviously don't want to spoil it for fans but but it kind of you kind of see it a little bit in the little drummer girl where politics plays a big part in it but without compromising the entertainment value. Cause you know, in my opinion, you gotta have that. That's like the number one priority. Um, I want people to be excited and emotionally invested and on a thrill ride. But at the same time, I think, um, Mike is going to bring a lot of depth and, and sort of parallel or, 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 or 
mirror what's going on in the world right now. Well, how subtle do you see the allegory on this one being relative to what Ron Moore did? It's, I mean, honestly, you know, I got to say, whenever you do an allegory, especially about today, I don't know how subtle you could be anymore. I mean, reality is so on the nose right now on on what's sort of wrong and right in the world that it's kind of hard to sort of um, to sort of be elegantly nuanced about it. So um, I, I think we're probably going to take a, the, the same page from Ron on that. We're probably not going to be that subtle about it. So so a, a, a massive global pandemic storyline right right off the bat? Well, look, I, I would love to say that the pandemic is the only thing wrong in the world right now, but that is just simply not the case. So it, it'll be a lot. It'll be a lot about a lot more than that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, is the goal to have the new Battlestar be a long running series or is it more of a closed ended? No, no, no. It'll be a, it'll be a long running series. However, I will say there's one one conversation Mike and I had and we had it with Peacock as well is, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a weirdly a similar conversation to what I had when I started Homecoming, which is there was this weird implication, there, a, a knee-jerk reaction of everyone saying, well, it's a drama, so we're going to have to expand it to an hour long, et cetera. And, I, you know, of course, I turned around to everybody and said, wait, why? The podcast is a half hour. It's great. Why, why the fuck would we extend that to an hour long? It doesn't make any sense to me. And and of course, everybody kind of looked at each other and said, well, yeah, I guess I guess there isn't a reason anymore. And that's that's, you know, due to the fact that TV is so, so evolved in the, in these sort of experimental ways. And of course, there's the streaming platforms where you can kind of play around with format. And so one thing with Battlestar, we we're going to employ that same sort of strategy. There might be episodes that are longer than others. There might be. Uh, there might be a three arc episode that could stretch along three episodes. There might be a standalone episode that's a half hour long. We want to play around with all four. We don't want to put any guardrails at all. We want to just tell the best story possible for each episode. And because I do believe in the episode model, um, I, I think I'm, I maybe share the frustration that some TV critics have when, when showrunners go on and say it's a 10 hour movie or three, well, that's, that's silly. It's not. And, and why, why, if you wanted to do it, just do it on another platform. What we're doing here is every episode, you have the opportunity to change up the tone, to change up the point of view, to tell a different story, to tell, to dissect one thing or to go massively wide on, uh, on another thing. Um, so we are going to lean into that, not, not, not shy away from it, especially with Battlestar. Well, when Ron tackled Battlestar, people had affection for the original series, but it was kind of a it was a show in my childhood that was important to me. It was campy. I know that, but I still love it kind of thing. You guys, though, have to be following one of the kind of seminal TV shows of the aughts. Was there any consideration of is there a kind of tackier sci fi project that we can remake where we can elevate that rather than following in these very large footsteps? If you're talking about Buck Rogers, Dan, I'm going to take that as a personal attack because I loved that show growing up. Flash, Gor Flash Gordon, you know, take your pick. I feel like there are still properties out there that can be elevated, whereas Battlestar maybe is already. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. It's a fair point. I remember Scorsese. I, I, I don't want to misquote him, so maybe I shouldn't quote him at all. But I'll say I remember reading somewhere and somebody saying when, when the Cape Fear remake was re remade. I, I think it's way better than the original. And that's part of the point of remakes is that you want to you want to you, you think you can either evolve or elevate it to something different. Um, 
but that that is not the case here. I think what Ron did was perfect and and, and stand stand on its own. But because we're talking about TV, we are not retreading and retelling that story. We are just simply going into a different part of the universe or a different part of the time uh, of Battlestar and 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 kind of coming up with our own story. So in in that way, I think that's part of the reason why um, we we were still sort of excited because we we never viewed it as a reboot or a remake of uh, of what Ron did. You know, while while we are on BSG, you guys haven't done any casting yet, but how close are you to, to casting? Are you looking for established actors, newcomers, any original faces or familiar faces returning? Right now, we are just focused on writing, so I have no casting updates for you. Now, I want to go back to the the conversations you have with collaborators when you're starting on these projects, because, you know, you've sort of talked about how people have these expectations about you. OK, he's going to come in and direct 13 episodes. OK, he's going to come in and rewrite every script. Is there a conversation you have to have where you have to reassure people that's actually not what I'm going to do? You will have free reign to some degree? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> the, the short answer is yes. There's this weird expectation that I'm going to come over and take take the, take the project under my wing and just do, do what I will with it. Um, and and I say no. Oh, you no, you're doing all the work. I'm I'm not doing all the work. Uh, and but I got I, I got to say. Uh, it's been it's been different because I was everyone sort of knew I was on Mr. Robot, right? So they knew I was going to have to go back to that, and I had to run the room on that and direct that. Um, so I didn't, you know, Homecoming was really the first conversation I had, and that definitely was the implication is that everyone thought I would just be the showrunner on that show, and I had to be the one to say, well, I I think. I trust these guys, and I think that um, Eli and Mike, I think they're going to do a great job running the room themselves. Um, and it's the same thing with uh, with Andy on Briar Patch. Ultimately, though, I mean, going forward, it's it's a, it's a, it's an interesting thing because, again, being in their shoes. Look, when I wrote Mr. Robot, I had zero zero television experience. I'd never been on a television set. I had never been in a writers' room. Um, uh, and it's weird too because if you look at the credits, in our, you know you worked your way up in a writer's room, from a writer's room assistant to a story editor to uh, consulting with supervising producer, and I didn't do any of that. So I, I felt like a weirdly a fraud that first season. I was kind of like just making sh shit up as I went along. Um, I went to John Wells's first. Uh, he, he so Emmy, my wife, was on Shameless at the time, and um, so of course you know. I was first time showrunner. I'm going to ask one of the greatest showrunners of all time some questions. And he invited, he was so nice enough to invite me to this WGA uh, uh, showrunner panel where he was speaking. And I literally wrote all the notes of his day. He would go and talk about his schedule for the day. This is what he did in the morning in the room. And I just wrote it all down and I just ripped that off and copied that. So, but I, you know, dur during that first season of Mr. Robot, I learned so much. And I cared about the story. And I knew that the combination of someone who's passionate about what they want to do, the story that they want to tell, and um, and that they're going to learn. They're going to sponge up. They're, they're quick on their feet. Those two things are really critical to the show. They're kind of more important in experience to, in a lot of ways. So when when I work with, show, with new showrunners like Andy or like Eli and Micah, I look for that. I see, And when I see that in them, I feel a lot – I feel a lot more trusting to kind of hand over the reins and let them let them run with their baby. 
was there was there a point on Mr. Robot in the early going where you sort of that feeling of feeling like being a fraud where it passed where you where you were able to go okay wait I actually do belong here I actually know what I'm doing no not 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 one I I mean I still kind of feel like a fraud sometimes like what the hell happened I mean I, you you also got to remember when I was doing Mr. Robot I was. We were editing and writing in LA. I was shooting in New York. And th that was back when we were writing while we were shooting, while we were editing, while we were airing, which again, this is why I'm sort of on the totem pole of showrunners. I'm at the bottom because like, I don't know how, how, uh, uh, these showrunners do it, where they're doing all three simultaneously all year, all year round. I mean, after that first season, I had to slow down and say, guys, I got to write the whole thing first. Then we can shoot. Then we can edit. Like that's that's the way my mind works. But but people like John Wells and Ryan Murphy and all these guys, they are able to juggle and do the sort of the multitask. And I never caught on to that. So in a weird way, I do feel like I'm kind of I don't I don't know. I'm kind of in this like a different way of show running that isn't isn't as fast and furious as the, as what the other people do. And, you know, you have a, a rather sizable overall deal with Universal Content Productions. Um, and from what I heard, you were very close to, to signing with Amazon before UCP came back. But I wonder, you know, c considering, you know, the amount of multitasking that, that the most prolific people, you look at the Ryan Murphys and the Greg Berlantis and Shondas, do you have a number? Like how many projects do you want to be juggling at any time? Or, you know, what? You know, the bigger showrunners we know, right, are, that are in highest demand are the ones who can juggle. Yeah. You know, Berlanti's got like 21 scripted shows right now. Which, which is insane. And kudos to him. I, I, I and, and, and to, to, to everybody out there that's, that's pulling up, that's pulling uh, the, the number of shows that they're, uh, that they're able to produce every year. But I, I think, again, I go back to my strategy, which is, which is how I became a showrunner, which is empowering and enabling other, other people who have created written an amazing pilot and 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 that to me there's no number to that we get we get pilots and 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 um and ip sent to us all the time and it's not just about the script or the material it is about the person behind the script and the material and if those two things work it's, it's just like what i just said those two those two things have to be there for us to say all right let's do it let's make this show because ultimately i think the person who you know, I can obviously go on as a co-showrunner and a co and, you know, really kind of run the room with this person that created the, the story. But it's ultimately if it came from them, there's to me, that's more sacred. And there's an intimacy that they're going to have of the material that's going to trump anyone else's. So that's why we look for that in, uh, in, in all the uh, all the pieces of development we get into to the company. So to that end, do you have, is there a third season in mind for Homecoming and will Briar Patch be back for season two? Uh, the, we're still thinking about that. I mean, ultimately you gotta, you know, it's, it's the story that tells us if it wants to keep going. I mean, that was a, that was a conversation we had with Mr. Robot. I remember, you know, I'll, I'd say the network and, and the studio really wanted us to keep going. And, um, it was, because of where the story ended up that we knew that the last season was the last season. So I think we have to have those conversations with the showrunners to decide, okay, creatively, how do we feel about another season? Cause that is the, I think to me, that is some, look growing up and I know you guys are avid TV fans. A lot of shows go on way longer than they should. And that is a curse among, uh, among a lot, even some of my favorite television shows, 
there's just a little, you know, three or four more seasons that they shouldn't have done. And, uh, and I know that, uh, we're very cognizant of that at the company. And we want to make sure that as, as long as we're incredibly passionate and there's an urgent need to keep going, then we'll keep going and we'll figure it out. And we'll keep going. And just our regular last question with guests, what are you watching and enjoying? Well, I haven't, so no spoilers here. I love The Last Dance, but I did not watch last night's two episodes, So that I, which I believe is the finale. I, I'm, I'm, so I'm, I love that. I would encourage anyone to watch that, especially if they grew up uh, watching basketball um, in the 90s. Uh, I really love Devs. What else is out that's good? Why don't you guys give me a recommendation? <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking for stuff. I, I really love Upload on Amazon. Okay. I'll check that out. I'll check that out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a, that's a comedy, right? A half-hour comedy? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll check it out. Greg Daniels, yeah. Yeah, yeah. On but Amazon. I really love Devs, but I honestly, The Last Dance, it, it really, I, I'm sure this, is, this has been said many times before, but it, I really love the, the OJ docuseries, Made in America, and it really remind, really takes me back to that. And it's probably one of the best shows on TV. TV right now that I've seen this year. So, yeah. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today, Sam. We appreciate it. Awesome. Thanks, Sam. Thank you. Season two of Homecoming premieres Friday, May 22nd on Amazon. Number five. As usual, we wrap things up with the Critics Corner. This week's new launches include HBO Max's Love Life, the final season of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. on ABC, Hannah Gatsby's Nanette follow-up comedy special, Douglas, on Netflix, and season two of Homecoming on Amazon. Dan, what you got? Well, I already discussed HBO Max's Love Life, which unfortunately is not very good, as well as the Elmo talk show, which is slightly better. And potentially the best thing that might be on next week might or might not be Hannah Gatsby's new comedy special, but it's embargoed, so can't say that. So... Let's talk about what else there is. There are a couple very difficult to watch documentaries that some people will find very intriguing. Uh, FX gets into the feature length documentary game with AKA Jane Rowe, which premieres on Friday. And it is it is frustrating and perplexing and will probably anger you on several levels. But I think it's probably trying to do that. It's about uh, the the woman who. The woman behind Jane Roe of the landmark Roe versus Wade abortion case, uh, and it's it's really frustrating in places, but I think it's supposed to be really frustrating in places. So if that's the kind of thing you're in the mood for, there it is. It's only two hours, whereas Netflix's Jeffrey Epstein Filthy Rich, which premieres next week, is four hours, and it's... It's along the same lines as surviving R. Kelly and leaving Neverland, and it's it's giving voice to the victims of, of Jeffrey Epstein's abuse of a wide variety of disgusting varieties. I think some people who want it to be this bigger expose about basically the circle of rich and famous people who Jeffrey Epstein catered to or who want hours of in-depth deconstruction of whether Jeffrey Epstein did or did not kill himself are probably going to be disappointed, but it's it's very watchable, at times very emotional, and like AKA Jane Rowe, it will infuriate you and piss you off on any number of levels. Um, and yeah, you, you just listened to our uh, interview with Sam Esmail, and 
Homecoming premieres this week. Uh, the second season is seven episodes as opposed to 10 for the first, and it is a strangely smaller season than the first. On the other hand, it's only three and a half hours. It tells a fairly contained mystery, and Janelle Monet and Hong Chow in particular are really good basically filling in for Julia Roberts, who was the lead in the first season. I think if you go in with lowered expectations, there are things to enjoy in the second season of Homecoming. I think if you go in with the kind of expectations a lot of people had for the first season, maybe it doesn't live up to those. So adjust your expectations accordingly. Well, that feels like a good place to wrap things up. Thank you for listening to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. For more of Dan's weekly recommendations, be sure to subscribe to THR's Now See This newsletter. We'll be back next week when we'll be joined by Central Park and Bob's Burgers showrunner Lauren Burchard in one of my favorite showrunner spotlight interviews. It is indeed a great interview about a great show. Stay tuned for both the interview and my full review. Until then, be sure to subscribe to us on all of your various podcasting platforms. If you like us, rate us. If you really like us, write a little review-y thing. We're always happy to see you guys on Twitter, so come say hi to us. And if you have questions, maybe it'll be time for a mailbag segment next week. Who knows? We've accumulated a few good ones. You can reach us at TV's Top 5 at THR.com. That's TV's Top 5, the number 5, at THR.com. Until next week, Leslie. Until next week, Dan.